is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. I'm Richard. I'm here as ever with my great mates, Steve and Mark. And we are here to once again put three albums through our grinder. We are the only heavy metal podcast that rates and ranks and reviews track by track the albums that you should have in your record collection. And we are building, building, building the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. So you found us already. That's great. We're wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, but also on Twitter, follow us at, at Enter Sad Men. And we're also on Facebook. So search for Enter Sad Men on Facebook. Most importantly of all, please do visit us at www.entersadmen.co.uk where you will have all of the details of all of our episodes and indeed the most important Hall of Fame itself. So you can see what we've ranked so far. So here we are. We are a year into uh, producing uh, these episodes and these podcasts. And tonight we are on episode, can you believe it, number 45. So we have, so with this episode done, we'll have reviewed 135 albums and approaching 1,300 tracks. So the theme of this episode is In Your Direction. So uh, we'll talk a bit more about the challenges this theme gave us in a minute. Um, but this is all about sort of points of the compass, directions and the like. So, um, Mark, Steve, hello to you again. Hi, mate. You all right? Yeah, really good. Steve, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Very well. But, um, yeah, it was quite a challenge this week, wasn't it? We didn't quite stick to the brief, did we? <laughs> how difficult can it be, right? Right. Mm. I don't know if the briefs are becoming more challenging because now we've got so many albums, so many tracks in the Hall of Fame we're all kind of feeling that we need to find something that is worthy of review and inclusion as opposed to just going straight to the bottom spot. But well, shall I go first? So, um, yeah, looking at Norths and Souths and Easts and Wests and compasses and, and needles and, oh, I, I, I don't know how many hundreds of albums and books and websites and everything else I visited and searches I did. And I failed, really, <laughs> because I... I chose an album that, um, well, you could loosely, I suppose, uh, uh, associate with, with globes and compasses and whatever, um, by an uh, obscure band called Axis. Uh, and I've really, really enjoyed it. We'll talk about more about it in a second. But what, one, one thing that happens when we have these challenging briefs is we do tend to unearth one or more gems, uh, and I've, I've I've really enjoyed uh, listening to uh, to this one and 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 well all all three of them but two in particular I've really enjoyed this week. So yeah, Steve, what about your choice? How, how easy was this for you, and what did you settle on eventually? That was just impossible. It was ludicrous. It just shouldn't have been this ludicrous. Um, so the, the options for me were South of Heaven. Well, we've done that, so that's that gone straight away. Uh, Thunder in the East, but. Three weeks after we've done Loudness, kind of probably not. Beast from the East, Unleashed in the East, which are both live albums. So therefore, when we do live albums, that's when I'll do a live album. Thank you very much. 
And to the point where I know we were kind of rethinking the brief a little bit, weren't we? But you know what, briefs me. We're just going to wind up with three albums that are fine. Let's just do it. So we have, and, and I'm glad we persevered. So I came up um, with um, a band called Threshold, whose two claims to compass fame is that the keyboard player and producer is a guy called um, Richard West. Yeah, exactly. That's where we are. But better still, and I'm really pleased with this, they played their first gig at the Compasses in Egham, Surrey. Now, I've got that from Wikipedia. To be honest, I couldn't care less. As soon as I saw that, I thought, yeah, Mark will just, Mark will just take the piss out of that straight away. And lo, he did. But anyway, there you go. So anyway, the point is, we wound up with Threshold, who did three albums in our time scale, two albums in our time scale, because we kind of work it around no later than 95, don't we? So I could have chosen one of their first two albums. Uh, first one's Wounded Land, and I've gone for the second one, which is uh, Psychedelicatessen, which um, I knew anyway and, you know, loved it to bits and uh, was happy to uh, happy to bring that to the table. And I hope you two were happy to hear it as well. Oh, God, yes, definitely was. A, a real delight, actually. Never heard of them, never heard it. And, um, yeah, because you, you sent the... And I'm, I'm, well, and uncommonly for you, an uncommonly long WhatsApp, kind of setting some context. I know. I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be a heap of shit. If Steve feels the need to write more than three words in a WhatsApp to explain something, then there's a problem. Um, you, th- you think I'm getting my excuses in early, don't you? That's what it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. But my God, I couldn't have been further... I couldn't have been more wrong. Couldn't have been more wrong. Um, so uh, no, I've really enjoyed listening to um, to both uh, Axis and Threshold. I sort of set off in a different direction. I thought, right, one of the most famous recording studios in rock history has to be Compass Point in the Bahamas. It was the studio that produced Back in Black for Christ's sake. So there, immediately, you've got you know a contender for the top ten uh, of this particular list. But you know what? We've done quite a lot of ACDC over the course of the last 12 months or so. And I thought, no, we'll, we'll give that a rest. With you know, Apart from anything else, after Back in Black, I'm struggling to think of something that might kind of trouble the top three. So that's not to say there isn't one out there, but it doesn't spring immediately to mind. So I thought, no, we'll save that. I thought, OK, well, you know, let's have a look. Well, Judas Priest produced an album there, but we've done quite a lot of Priest as well. And quite recently, so I thought, no, we won't do that. I, I looked at the Ormond Brothers band because they had a, an absolutely um, monstrous live album. I'm one of the one of the renowned as one of the greatest live albums of all time, live at Fillmore East. I thought that's fine. Uh, I thought oh, I can't do that, and I thought, well, maybe there's a studio album of theirs I could do. So I thought, you know, uh, Idle Wind South. No, that I thought, no, that's not going to do it either. I also went through Beast from the East, Unleashed in the East, and yeah. Eventually, I ended up with 38 Specials, Wild-Eyed Southern Boys. And, yeah, it's, let's just say I've enjoyed your two more than I've enjoyed the one that I've had. Okay, well, let's uh, give everybody a little listen of some of the snippets from some of the songs that we've been listening to after the, over, over the past week or so.
Right, so hopefully that's um, that floated your boat. We do these things in chronological order, we always have done. So first up on this episode is, yeah, this is the, the two of the three albums tonight I didn't know. Um, so that's always an absolute treat when that happens. And this is certainly one of them. I didn't even know the name of the band, if I'm honest. Um, and yet you look at the people in it and you think maybe you should have done. But anyway, I haven't. Luckily, you have, Richard, and this is Axis, and it's a circus world. And, uh, yeah, talk us through it. Opening album sleeve notes. It was research that led me to this. Um, it wasn't something I'd heard of either. And, yeah, they're a bit of a blink and you'll miss them band, aren't they? Because they only produced this one album. Uh, so, yeah, their first and final album, It's a Circus World. Uh, and, yeah, they were formed in 1978, and a lot of people will know, I think, you know, some of the members. Um, I mean, for me personally, um, it was the drummer, one of the Apici brothers, Vinny Apici. He formed Axis with Danny Johnson. Uh, they'd both been together in Rick Derringer's band. And they uh, recruited a guy called Jay Davis uh, on bass. Uh, you know, Jay Davis had been uh, in uh, original Incantation of Foreigner, I think. And uh, I guess, I mean, they are a, a, a typical power trio, really. I mean, exceptional talent as, as musicians. And Andy Johns, uh, and, and who engineered the likes of Led Zeppelin, uh, was uh, engaged to to produce the album. I've done a lot of digging, but there's not actually that much information around, um, you know, what the plan was. But I, I, I can only guess that they they had big plans, you know, and certainly getting Andy Johns on board to produce uh, this this first album. One would have thought the ambition was there, but they, uh, yeah, so they produced this, recorded it in late 1978. It was released in 1979 on RCA, but only in the US. Uh, wasn't released originally in the UK. Timing-wise, it's uh, about 39-odd minutes. It was recorded in Record Plant Studios in uh, both New York and Los Angeles and uh, didn't didn't reach the charts. So what happened after this? Well, the, what hap- the, the big event that happened soon after this album was released was that Vinnie Peachy uh, joined Black Sabbath. Uh, and the story goes that um, when Black Sabbath were looking for um, a new drummer, Tony Iommi actually played Ronnie James Dio this album. So the question hanging around in my head, I don't know if, if you guys found anything out about this, but it just would appear that I, I imagine they had great things planned, but then Vinnie Peachy was poached and attracted into Black Sabbath and, of course, then played with Dio after that and, and went on to, you know, his, his great career. And and th- then the the other guys went on and did other things and the Axis as a, as a unit just disappeared from Trace almost as quickly as they had appeared. But in terms of an album, I, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, this is good, old, solid, late 70s, heavy rock uh lots of nice influences uh we'll go through what you know what this album sounds like i'm sure as we go through it its tracks but it, it i think the musicianship is brilliant i think the um arrangements and songwriting on the whole very strong some ups and downs but on the whole re- you know great power great um really good energy in it all i think the production's fantastic as i guess you'd expect from 
from Andy Johns. And uh, so track-wise, there are 11 on uh, on the album, and they go like this. So side one contains Brown Eyes, Busted Love, Juggler, Soldier of Love and Train. And then side two, Armageddon, Ray's Electric Farm, Stormy Weather, Cats in the Alley, Bandits of Rock, and the title track, Circus World to Finish. So, yeah, it was a, another lovely discovery. Glad to make it part of mine and our collection. I'm very interested to see how it fares. So how did you get on? Well, it's just an odd story, isn't it? Just a, just a really odd thing because it's a, it's a really decent piece of work that it's a, just this sort of standalone piece of work from these boys and nothing came of it. It's just the whole thing seems odd, especially the fact you, you can – there's so little out there on the internet. I'm sure if you looked at the right places, it would find something. But um, – just so little kind of record of this record, which is just an odd thing, really. Yes, it's good, but it's definitely more 70s than 80s. It's definitely more U2 than me. Um, but musically, yeah, very hard to fault. Liked it a lot. Production, yeah, brilliant, but you'd expect that from the bloke who's produced Cinderella's best album, which, as we know, isn't Long Cold Winter. And I like the power. I like the tunes, um, some tunes better than others. They get the best bits out of the way early. I mm. think I would, I would say that. Um, I'm starting to lose patience with it a little bit. Well, maybe not patience. That's probably the wrong word. It, it, it excites me less as it, as it goes on, I must admit. Um, but there's three or four songs in there that are really, really great. Love the soundscape. Love the musicianship. As I say, drenched in the late 70s, uh, which I suppose it would be, wouldn't it, um, given that it's recorded in the late 70s. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a great find, and, I'm, and I've had good fun listening to it. I'll tell you what, it's very accessible, and I'm just left asking the question, you know. Because let's face it, a drummer's a drummer. You can still replace him, can't you? So I, I don't quite know why, um, why, it all, why it all folded. Who knows? Well, someone does, but not me. Mark, how, how did you get on? Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. There's been a running joke through this, this podcast that uh, I am as 70s as a pair of bell-bottoms. Um, and I always thought that was a bit unfair. I thought, no, 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 I'm a child of the 80s like Steve. You know, that's where my that's where my sweet spot is. But actually, over 45 episodes, <laughs> I've decided I actually quite like being in the 1970s. And this band is all over the 1970s. It's in 1978. It's in 1970. It dabbles a little bit in 1973. Uh, it has. It actually goes forward a bit as well. There's one track where it's 1980 or 1981, and that for me just creates the most, you know, glorious smorgasbord of sound um, that it's possible to imagine. So, eight episodes ago, I, I kind of fell in love with um, Lucifer's Friend so much that I went out and spent a small fortune on the vinyl uh, copy of the album. I haven't quite fallen that far for this one, but it has been close because. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and like you, I'm thinking, well, you know, where did that all go wrong? Where did the wheels come off this? Because as Steve says, you know, replacing a drummer, you know, no disrespect to drummers, but actually you can replace a drummer. You, can, you, know, <laughs> you know, even Cozy Powell is, I mean, the only irreplaceable drummer is possibly Neil Peart. And that's it, you know, in the, in the pantheon of drummers, you know, they're all pretty much interchangeable. So, it can't just be that. You've got RCA, big record label, pumping presumably lots of money in. You don't get record plant studios in New York or Los Angeles for, you know, Thrippence Haveney. Andy Johns is a, you know, first-class, world-class producer. The band are on fire. No idea. No mm. idea what, 
what happened, but you know they their their star blazed bright and brief, and uh, it's been a privilege to spend some time with it this week. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting you talk about the uh, your Lucifer's friend moment because I went onto Discogs and you can pick this album up in uh, near mint condition, as in basically unopened. Let's get on with this album then. So as I said, eleven tracks, five on side one six on side two and the album kicks off uh with a really good opening statement in my view in a track called brown eyes this has got a real sort of power trio sound almost a sort of psychedelic kind of chuggy groovy riff with the the layers of vocals over the top i think for me a bit of an early deep purple flavor and the one lovely thing is about trios i i always think is it that there's then space for everything to breathe and so the way that the guitar and the drums and the bass uh all work together with these brilliant brilliant uh vocals on top um, it's, yeah it's a really nice opening so when i first played this i thought ah now this has promise um yeah no i've got a big i've got a big meld of, of- sort of 70s styles with this song straight away yeah you mentioned purple definitely i've thrown in bad company and rainbow and um yeah it's it's, it's a nice little cocktail what i love about brian brown eyes it, it's is it's a, it's a really good song for three minutes or so until the outro which gets the pause gets the big build up and then just for a minute i and i and i live and i love these things it just just jams to the finish against that backbeat it's just one of those really kind of kind of hypnotic ends just a brilliant piece of uh, brilliant piece of work. Love this song, and like you, I thought, yeah, that's um, this album has promise based on that. So when this first started, when I first started playing this, I got echoes of "Ride the Sky," Lucifer's friend, because it's got that same really dirty, distorted guitar sound, um, and, and a very similar riff actually. So I was immediately kind of okay, yeah, this is all right, this is all right, and you're right, you know. You can hear everything going on in this track. There's so much space in it. It's just glorious. That riff is just absolutely hypnotic, isn't it? It just keeps running. And I just sat back, headphones on, late at night, and just went, okay, I'm just going to immerse myself in this now. And I did for 39 minutes, and it was wonderful. Yeah, love this track. Track two is Busted Love. Starts off with a, I guess, typical, a peachy, big drum groove. Um, he's certainly living a bit of the spirit of Bonham in some of this stuff, isn't he? Then the guitar comes in, and again, I, I think this is a, a a step up for me from the first track. This just absolutely drives and drives and drives along. There's a lovely lift, a lovely bridge in the middle, and and you just it, it's it's just got such a groove. It's one of those songs. Try and listen to this and not move a muscle, a finger. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. It's dancing and rocking, isn't it? It's can you dance and rock at the same time? And yes, you can. Just stick on busted love. I'm getting uh, I'm getting stacks of ZZ Top with this, and it, it, no coincidence there are three piece. Um, it's like it's like Gibbons and and Johnson have gone for identical guitar tunings and all sorts. I dispute the fact that it's better than Brown Eyes. I don't think it is, but I just think it's a great track. What I mean, what a what a follow up. What 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 a, what a what a track too. I agree, Steve. I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's as good as the first track either. But it is a, a brilliant second track. Track three is Juggler. Juggler's a slower pace after the first couple, but a lovely 
dirty guitar riff. Uh, I get some really nice bridges and interludes as it as it goes through, uh, but it all come always comes back to this slow, groovy, uh, dirty riff. The layers and the vocal harmonies throughout this album and I mean this track again, yeah, is uh, it's really really good. Yeah, I like it. I'm waiting to hear Stephen Tyler sing. This is because um, there's some horns in here, aren't there? This is definitely quite aerosmithy. Uh, I love it. It's just another riff, isn't it? It's it's a, it's a third riff. It's a very good riff. Um, and even when it, it does kind of start lose its way a little bit in, um, but then returns home with that riff, which is you know the, the backbeats on all these songs are uh, very consistent, very high level, high quality. Just a just a mean song. Like it. And I'm still enjoying this album. Oh, I'm I'm still enjoying it. I I I, I think it's not as good as the two that have gone before. It's funny, I'm getting quite a lot of Hendrix. It, it, yeah, we're back in sort of late 60s, early 70s here, I think, in terms of the sound that they're creating. Obviously, it's a good track, but it's, yeah, I don't think it's, um, it, it's, it's a noticeable step down from the first one, certainly mm. for me. But I still really enjoy it. Yeah, it's a good, good, good song. And it's not as good as the next one either. Soldier of Love, uh, track four. Starts off almost Nile Rodgers, doesn't it? I mean, this fantastic, funky, funky guitar. And then when the vocals pitch in, for me, it becomes a, a Blue Oyster Cult song. I mean, it, it almost sounds like Buck Dharma singing. I mean, this continues sort of, you know, this funk rock uh, power all the way through. I think it's a cracky song. If Blue Oyster Cult put this on Five Unknown Origin or... Um, agents fortune were any of them yeah. you'd go yeah this is this is absolutely in their wheelhouse isn't it um so i don't know how much all of this stuff was you know influencing them mm. you know um but it's just such a what i love about this album is every track is a surprise and you know some are better than others as you know inevitably but there's something new and fresh or old and fresh, depending on which way you want to look at it, on every track. And I, I, I really like that. And this is an absolute peach. Am I, am I the only one getting a Scorpions chorus here as well? It's very Scorpions-esque when the, the, the harmonies, telling you. Yeah, you, you, you're both absolutely right. I mean, I wouldn't have seen this coming, although I probably should have guessed, given the the um, the year that's on the album. Um, and I'll forgive them that kind of call in the game bollocks towards the back end, which it doesn't agree with me in the slightest um <laughs> but, there's, but there's so much good stuff before that that yeah they get away with it right so let's finish off uh, side one uh with uh, track five which is called train so another change in mood another change in tempo and style uh, and a slow song uh to to end side one but another that i really really have enjoyed and uh as much as they were just sitting back, closing your eyes and soaking some of this stuff up, particularly for me, applies to Train. This, I don't know about you guys, but this has got a real bad company vibe to it, hasn't it? There are quiet verses, then these big, powerful choruses. It's bad company, the song. It's their, it's their kind of version of that, really, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's expansive and epic and all the rest of it. And, and that. There's a danger that when you get to this track, you feel slightly let down because, you know, it's been so up the rest of the, the this side. And then suddenly it's all kind of, it's, we, we dial it back a notch. But once you kind of 
sit down and listen to it, you just get completely seduced by it, don't you? It's, um, I think if it is um, Danny Johnson singing on this, and I think it is, his voice is absolutely amazing on this track. It is. No, I, I was seduced by this straight away. I, it's, a, it's a charming piece of work. I love it to bits. I, I did wonder if um, Ian Astbury wasn't slightly influenced by a song like this. I'm getting a little bit of, um, you know, something like Brother Wolf, Sister Moon sort of thing. Uh, did that space, because the cult used that space very well, as you know. And I'm getting that with this. All the, I mean, there are, there are points in the song where it actually sounds Asprey-ish as well. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to. I, I just think this is t- combining, you know, a sort of dreamy, slow number, but with plenty of beef as well. That's a, that's, that's a good skill. That's a good skill. And that, that's five tracks in now, and there's nothing predictable about any of the five thus far, And which, again, you know, it just begs the question, doesn't it? You know, why wasn't there more to come? Okay, let's uh, flip it over then and uh, on to uh, track six. Uh, Side two, track one, which uh, lifts it up again. Uh, this is a track called Armageddon. I mean, some, I mean, in our tour of big bands of uh, the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen, Houses of the Holy Era Led Zeppelin is what I'm getting here. Just big, you know, machine gun staccato riffs, stops, starts, just huge Bonham-type drums all the way through. And, yeah, I, I'm continued to listen to this uh, album with a great big smile on my face. It is, isn't it? I, I, I hadn't sort of quite got the depth of the Zep uh, on this, but it is, there is a lot of, there's a lot of kind of echoes of what Zeppelin were doing, oh, only six or seven years before this, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay, let's move on then to track uh, two on, on side two, which is Ray's Electric Farm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, another really good, I mean, good, good groovy song, but I think as Steve mentioned earlier. I mean, I, I'm with you, Steve. The, the 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 first half, the first half dozen tracks on this album are, are really, really strong, and then I think it, it, it dips a bit for the second half. Nothing wrong with any of you know, these so- songs, including Ray's Electric Farm. Perfectly good. It's enjoyable to listen to, but I was felt I find it less mem- memorable. There's not so much interesting, so many interesting things going on within it. It's a, it's a, I thought it was a bit sub-Beatles. There's, mm-hmm. there's a bit of 1970s, like, you know, turn of the 60s, 70s, Rubber Soul, Sergeant Pepper era Beatles. And, it, yeah, this, this, this track's just, there's, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's, it's decidedly average compared to the, five or six tracks that have gone before, I think. Mm. There's another Zep riff in there, though, isn't there? Definitely. And I, I, I think that's a nice backdrop. To, I'm just curious to know what Ray's Electric Farm is, was, or anything. I, I can't <laughs> even find any lyrics, which is you know, yeah. bizarre. They must be out there somewhere. Or maybe I could just listen. But um, I'd love to know what the song's about. Okay, so we move on then to uh, track eight, then, which is a track called Stormy Weather. And, well, the, the, the start of this actually reminded me of Early Rush, Sort of fly by night kind of era rush. I think, yes, again, it's a good solid rock track, nothing wrong with it. I've not got a lot else to say, really. I like the harmonies um, and in the, the vocals and the chorus. Um, a very, uh, quite a nice, I don't know, what, quite a sort of an uplifting, posit- uh, it's a positive vibe, positive energy kind of riff to this. 
this is the one I care least for on the album. I, I, I like the I like the verses. I think they're the harmonies are lovely. I think it's you know as you say, it's got a lot of positive energy. I just under I don't care much for the chorus. Things quite lazy. Mm. Um, so yeah, th- this would be my low point on the album. But low point, schmo point. It's um, it's still scoring reasonably well. The chorus sounds like it wants to go into uh, rolling like a river, doesn't it? But luckily, it doesn't. Yeah, it's it's yeah, strictly okay. It's it's fine. It would be one of my lower scores as well. But there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's it's a perfectly acceptable rock track, but not very memorable. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, to track nine, which is uh, "Cats in the Alley." Now, this reminded me of Aerosmith. <laughs> Uh, almost a little bit of kiss as well thrown in. Um, uh, another, and yeah, uh, back back a bit, bit better track in the last couple for me. Um, great groove to it. Aerosmith, really? This is Tigers Pantang. <laughs> this is this is Norbum before Norbum happened. Yeah, but but just the right side of the eighties because I'm enjoying this. So it's that, that's where I am. This, this is ahead of its time, this song. I like it a lot. Yeah. I think it's really nice, really nice yeah. little groove. I mean, Christ, the crew could have done this. It's kind of it's kind of mean and nasty. I like it. Yeah. love that guitar solo as well when it comes in, which is mm. effects beyond belief. But, um, yeah, this is a shining light on, on side two. Bit of a beacon. So that's followed by a track 10, which is Bandits of Rock. Again, a bit Blue Oyster Cult in style for me. Uh, I, I like the guitar work in, in this track, uh, and uh, again, some really nice layering. Just, just lots to just soak up in terms of the the sounds that the three of them are producing. I'll, I'll tell you why you like the riff because it's a reprise of Brown Eyes. It's a reprise <laughs> of the riff on the first track, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually, I've actually had enough of this album now. But the, so the, the solo on this. Just keeps just keeps me interested. It's great, great solo, really is. But, but and and you alluded earlier to the great musicianship, and that that will always shine through, won't it? Even if you just be getting the drift of it. I'm surprised you've had enough of it at this point. Oh, I, I no, I just side two just doesn't doesn't you know get me as a wreck to side one. That's all I'm saying. It's um, that's just how it is, you know. <laughs> Just slightly classic, as, as any good album reviewer would say. That's <laughs> all it is. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's see if uh, the final track and title track of the album stimulates Mr. Davis anymore um, as we move into Circus World. Oh, well, really gentle start, isn't it, with the guitar and the vocals? I mean, it, I mean, it, it takes a while to warm up and. I mean, the strings in in this particular arrangement. This still is leaving me a little cold as a, as a finish. I like the middle section uh, of it, but it doesn't do enough for me. Um, so Steve, did it stimulate you anymore? Well, funnily enough, funnily enough, I came back to life. Yeah, a little bit. It's um, this put some this put some meat on the bone, as it were. It's um, it's a little bit Beatlesy, isn't it? I quite like that in it. I think that's quite nice. Beatlesy is the very word I've written down. Yeah, yeah, and also a little bit super trampy as well with all that strings. I'm getting get kind of crime yeah. of the century. The, 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 the sort of concluding bit to crime of the century. Well, crime of the century, obviously. Yeah, it's kind of stringsy and charty, quite charty. 
you know, a little bit quite a commercial end to an out to, to the side to the album. It's, you know, it's, it's very chilled, but yeah, it's almost spiritual in places. I quite like it. Quite mm. like it. I'll say two things. First, it's it's got a wonderful, big, stompy, hooky chorus, mm. which I absolutely love. Um, and the other thing I say is it it is the title track, but it's not the title track mm. because the track itself is only called Circus World. So the other mystery that I've had this week is why did they feel the need to put It's A on the title mm-hmm. of the album? Next year we tell him with a psychedelicatessen isn't a portmanteau. I don't know what's going on here, but what? <laughs> well, I think it's gonna be fascinating to see what our highs and lows are for this. Who wants to go first? Steve, what are, what about your highs and lows? Happy to. Yeah, yeah. Low. Um n- not a big fan of Ray's farm, electrical or otherwise, but stormy weather probably is the um is my low point. That are brown eyes. Great start, and um, yeah, add it to the list of um, can't beat the first tracks. It's one of them. Mm. Mark? What he said. Ah, right. Okay, well, I think I think I agree with you around um, uh, probably Circus World, Raise Electric Farm, and down the bottom, I'll get Raise Electric Farm probably. For the high, I'm going to give it to Armageddon. Because I just, yeah, I mean, I know it's it's very Led Zepp, but it's it's just uh, such a fantastic, big, big, big song. So that gets uh, my top vote. Another great discovery for Enter Sadman that we can uh, chalk up. Uh, so that's the first album of our episode 45. And uh, In Your Direction, um, that is Axis, and it's a circus world. Listen to it on Spotify. Go and buy the album. Enjoy it. It really is worthwhile. Right, we're going to skip a couple of years on from 1978 nine, uh, to 1980. And uh, Mark's choice uh, for the sec- for the second album of, of tonight. And uh, that is 38 Special. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, well, actually, um, it depends on what you read because actually what I discovered uh, today is that this was actually released early in 1981, but we'll come on to that because it's listed in all sorts of places, Spotify not least of all, as a 1980 album. But anyway, as I say, we'll come on to that. First of all, why don't we just have a quick skip through the nine tracks that make up 38 Special's fourth album, Wild-Eyed Southern Boys. Okay, so hopefully you you enjoyed uh, that little snippet. If you're familiar with the album, then, well, that didn't have any surprises in it. If you don't know the album, well, maybe it whetted your appetite, maybe it didn't. What I would say is that of the three albums that we're listening to this evening uh, or in this show, I think, uh, for me, it's the um, weakest of the three. Um, But, you know, we'll have that conversation as well. Let's just kind of run through the all of the the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, This is actually, I suppose, strictly speaking, we've had two, this is the second Southern rock album of the evening. Because, of course, uh, Axis hail from Louisiana, as do, well, I was going to say as to 38 Special. They are from that neck of the woods, Jacksonville, Florida, so not all that far away. Um, This was released in January 1981. Now, here's, here's the real story, I think, is that, They started recording this in September 1979 
and they finished it in July 1980. So it took 10 months to record. It then took a further five months to release. So I haven't been able to get to the bottom of why that was, but I think it explains a lot about the patchiness of the album as a whole that I'm sure we'll come on and talk about because it's it's kind of caught in two time zones. They started recording it sort of at the arse end of the 1970s. You know, Northern hadn't quite happened. You know, Skinner was still quite big. Blackfoot were emerging. You know, they, you know, Donny Van Zandt, uh, who kind of sings and uh, most of well, the, the, the majority of the songs on this album, Steve, uh, Stevie Van Zandt, Ronnie Van Zandt's younger brother. Um, you know, so they're following in some fairly well, you know, well, following a fairly well trodden path here. Um, but there's something happening, no idea what, but it takes them the best part of 18, 19 months to get this record out. Um, and I think it, it suffers for that because what we've got is quite a lot of. Um, quite a lot of variation and not always in a good way. Uh, it was released on AM, runs uh, as does, as did Axis for around 39 minutes, produced by a guy called Rodney Mills. What I can tell you no more than that. Uh, it was recorded at Studio One in Doraville, uh, in Georgia, in the United States of America. The previous album was Rocking Into the Night, 1979. And the, the subsequent album, the, the next album, the fifth album, uh, released in 1982, is the one that probably 38 special were best known for, which was Special Forces. So, yeah, personnel, Donny Van Zandt on lead vocals, at least on tracks 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, and 9, and backing vocals. Don Barnes on guitars, piano, and lead vocals on tracks 1, 3, 5, and 6, which means that uh, the two Dons shared vocal duties on track 3. Jeff Carlisi on guitars, Larry Youngstrom on bass, Steve Brookins and Jack Grondin on drums. I mean... A, a cast of thousands recording this album, which is kind of de rigueur for Southern rock bands of that period. Lynn Skinner had about 4,000 members. Blackfoot had about 923. So hardly a surprise that this has got a lot of people involved in it. Um, no idea what it did in the charts. That's largely because I didn't uh, look it up. Um, so if you if you know what it did, well, great. And if you don't, well, go and look it up. Uh, it's got nine tracks. Uh, it's got five on side one, four on side two, and they run as follows. Hold on loosely. First time around, Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, the title track. Back Alley Sally, no idea what that's about. Uh, Fantasy Girl, Hitting and Running, Honky Tonk Dancer, Throw Out the Line and Bring It On. The kind of bit of trivia about this album is that um, Survivor's Jim Peterick, Petrick, uh, co-wrote or wrote three of the songs on here, here including the title track. I, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, we we tend to bring albums that we know to the podcast and they tend to be albums that we like or think have merit as a potential gate crasher to the top half. I, I didn't know this album at all when I chose it. I chose it because it was about the only one that fit the brief that I could find. Um, I've been a bit underwhelmed by it myself. Uh, it's it's not held my attention on any sort of level for the last week. It won't, well, it might end up in the bottom 10, 15, 20. It might end up sort of middling. I, I don't know, but it's not going to trouble the top 50, I don't think. How did you boys get on? Yeah, I think similarly. Yeah, I think similarly. It, it's, I mean, it, it's good Southern Rock. There are some, there's some nice songs on it. It was a, a I've enjoyed 
listening to it, but it almost in a bit of a kind of an easy on the ears kind of way. Yeah, we'll come on to the details, but I you talk about you know, Petrick co-writing some of these. Uh, so all of a sudden, I've just looked down my notes and thought, ah, so that's why it sounds a bit AOR in places then. <laughs> It's not that hooky, is it, or memorable? You're not got those earworms that that, that find their way inside. I mean, occasionally I did find myself humming, thinking about one of the tracks. But generally, what happened was my brain's music machine would get trained into sort of southern rock mode, and I'd find myself singing "Left Turn on a Red Light" by Blackfoot rather than anything special. You know what I mean? It's just been yeah. it's it's been a it's been a, an enjoyable listen, but um, yeah, like you, the the albums either side of this were the stronger ones from, for this this week for me. Steve, I'm not a big disciple of Southern Rock anyway, so those are the two best tracks off this for me are Petterick tracks, and they don't sound very Southern Rock at all. So, but um, I echo exactly everything that you two say. You mentioned Mark; it was caught in two time zones. I also thought it was caught in about in several genres as well, probably because of the songwriting involvement as well. There's an awful lot of stuff going on. I know they were labelled, unsurprisingly, isn't everyone who follows the Allman Brothers who does this style of music as labelled Allman Brothers copycats. It's just kind of a given, isn't it? And I assume they yeah. were. I read a nice interview with Don Barnes where he explained that they did start out. I've not heard, well, I've, I've not heard of any of, them, of their albums. He said that their first two albums... They did start out as a southern rock band with country tones, that's what he said, um, and the first two albums kind of oozed that. But he, 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 he worried that clones become copies and he'd just get dismissed. And I also think that Donny Van Zandt was probably a factor in that. And yeah, the, the, the whole Skinner thing going on as well. I mean, they, they, they'd have wanted to be more than just Ullman Brothers clones. So, yeah, this is country, it's southern, but I am getting, like Rich, I'm getting some fairly cool AOR in there. Even getting, a, you know, there's one track, I'm getting a real West Coast 80s flick in there as well, which is, you know, quite poppy, quite nice. But I think there's quite a lot of decent tunes in here. Memorable. Well, I couldn't tell you which ones they were, so maybe that, maybe that sort of answers that. Um, but I, 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 yes, it's a bit lightweight, but it's been good fun. In a, oh, God, inoffensive. Why do I even mention that word? It is inoffensive, and it's um, yeah, no, it's it's been a good listen, but nothing, nowhere near as good as the other two albums that we've had the pleasure of this week. Yeah, I mean, I in the year that we've been recording these shows, I don't think there's been another week where I have hit the back button on Spotify because I'm three quarters of the way through a song and I just haven't heard it because it's just turned into wallpaper in my ears. Mm. Yeah, it's all very pleasant. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it's all just a bit pleasant. What I would say, what I would say, Mark, is that we've listened to a lot worse over the last year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which is why I say it's it's not going, I don't think it's a bad album, but it's not memorable and it hasn't gripped me. And in the company that it's been in this week, it's just, yeah, it's just turned into a bit of, quite pleasant mush yeah. in my in my ears there are a couple of tracks on here that i really quite like the first track will probably make a playlist because i think yeah. it's got a lovely melody to it um the rest of it yeah it's all right it's all right shall we give it a listen all right so the first track is hold on loosely uh, which i think was a single from the album and this is all right this but there's very little that the, the opening riff is a bit southern but it's not there's there's more sort of 
American Midwest than American South about this. It's yeah, I can I can hear Kid Rock doing this. Um, you know, it's not there's no, who is himself of course Southern, but um, there's a very Midwestern sound to it, and a, and I, I kind of got quite a lot of Jefferson Starship here as well. So, and I quite like Jefferson Starship, mm. so I quite like this track, and it's got a lovely hook line, and it's nicely constructed, really well executed. Voice is great. It's Don Barnes. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking at this point, I'm thinking, well, if we've got another eight of these, this is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we don't get another eight of them, but this is a good start. Yeah, this is uh, really catchy, isn't it? Uplifting, the ride symbol you know, on, on the on the chorus, which always just lifts lifts the song. Um, and yeah, this, this is one of the Petrick penned one, isn't it? I mean, this is, yeah, you could, you could, you could hear Survivor singing this chorus. Oh, massively. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it's nicely balanced. It's uplifting. Yeah. And uh, ditto. Put the album on for the first time. Thought, ah, nice. Excellent. Quirkily, it's actually written on the on Petterick's kitchen table, the same kitchen table where he did write Eye of the Tiger, apparently. There you go. A little bit of uh, a little bit of triv for the night. What you should be getting, what you should be name-checking, because everyone involved with the band and Petterick himself, um, said is you should be getting the cars because it's apparently because it, it is a fusion of the cars and Skinhead yeah. and it, it's that kind of feel in it. Another for this is it was played on MTV's opening day. It was the 13th video shown on um, whichever day that was back in 1981. So there you go. Great song, love it. Sun out, roof down, get in the car and go. This is on. This is definitely on. Yeah. No, you said this is just what I needed by the cars. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, and I'll tell you something else. I've learned. I've learned that Steve's done a lot more research about this album than I have. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's let's move it on. Uh, and the second track up is the first time around. And I think my big problem with this album is epitomised in this track, which is that it starts off really promisingly. And then it just kind of just meanders around. And it's and, and there's so many tracks on this album that start this way. And you think, okay, they've, they've nailed this now. They've, they've kind of got it. But then it's almost like it's almost like the band just doesn't can't work out how to bring it home. And it just sort of meanders off into this sort of nothingness. This again is a it's a a good start. It is a good start. And I'm kind of my ears have pricked up and I'm there and I'm ready for it to really build and they don't they just it just peters out and just sort of wanders around aimlessly and and at that point you think oh okay well such a good start with hold on loosely and then we've got this it's a really strong start the opening riff is a corker but i'm not sure it i don't think it actually really reappears in that form does it later in the song it's not it's not that that would be the thing that would stick this whole thing together. And then what you'd want is you'd want a lovely fade with it at the end. But I'm not sure yeah. if it really reappears properly. It's it's a good foot tapper. I like the solo. Vocal melody is good again. Uh, a bit more southerny, isn't it, this one? Not, not a bad second track, but could have been a lot better. It's, it's really funny, isn't it? We're kind of, you know, doubting the calibre of the songwriting and that. And you're thinking, fuck me, how did it take 10 months to write this stuff? <laughs> Back of a postage stamp, isn't it? They could have been done in half an hour because it's not because yeah. it's they're not great songs. They're not great structured songs. 
Well, Hold, Hold On Loosely was a tough act to follow, let's be honest. Very tough act to follow. It's not a bad track, too. It's not a bad track, too, at all. Um, and not for the first time on this album, I'm guessing it's Jeff Carlissi is the, is the lead guitarist. Good solo in here, and there's one of several. I, I think that's right, Steve. I think the, the high point in all of this is Carlissi's solos, which are stunning, actually. Most of them, they're really, really good. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, their job appears to be to lift a song that sort of sags onto its knees after mm. setting off at a sprint. But and you know, I think we can. That that's also true of the third track, which is the title track, "Wild Eyed Southern Boys," um, which again starts in a really promising way. There's a guitar opening to this track, which I cannot place. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere else before, and I can't place it. But it starts off with a nice little guitar solo, um, and then you think, brilliant, and then it goes into something that I. I mean, I don't even know what style of music this is. It's, is it honky-tonk? Is it boogie-woogie? I don't know. But it's it's just, it's like sub-ZZ top. It's a very weak chorus. It's a yeah. weak and lazy chorus. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? It's, yeah, I, I, I've got, I've made very few notes. I don't <laughs> even know what to say about this track. Do you know what I mean? Well, allow me. What? <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I haven't, actually. I quite like it. I think there's quite a lot of Bob Seger. I was thinking Busload of Faith, something like that. Bob Seger, I don't know. That's the kind of run I was getting with that. Um, yeah, a little bit of ZZ Top about it. I, I like this a lot. I think there's a nice gallop to it. I do agree that the chorus is tame, um, but it's very clean. There's some nice, some lovely little gu- that runs on the guitar. And just when you think it's all over, they do what, uh, another of those sort of lazy, jammed outros. And, uh, you know, this is Americana, isn't it? Really, is that is that where we're going with this sort of track? I think it's it's fairly anodyne, but it's quite nice. Back Alley Sally, track four, is a bit better because it's got some balls and it's got some grit and some bite. But but even then, it it turns into a, a sort of a, a a little little Richard sounder like, doesn't it? It's not little Richard. You know you know who you want to mention. Just mention them. Well, Jason that's, Dave, there's two yeah. gentlemen. It is, it is, it's, it yes, is, it yeah. is, it is. It's just, it's pub band, isn't it? I mean, you'd go for a beer and, and there'd be a band playing in the pub. Oh, well, oh they're quite good. <laughs> this isn't good. This isn't, this isn't, I'm sorry. This is, when I read, when I read, when I read the listings, I was worried about two songs, Back Alley Sally, because it just sounds crap and it, pretty much is, and Honky Tonk Dancer, because as everyone knows, there's no place for Honky Tonk in, in rock. So they, they made me nervous straight away, and this hasn't assuaged my um, my fears. Don't like it. Don't like it very much. <laughs> I think that goes, I think that's three of us. So, so let's move it on to something else, which is even worse. No! No! Yes, no! Indeed. Thrice No! <laughs> Steve, this is dreadful. Fantasy girl. It's dreadful. (laughs) 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 This is honestly no wonder you like Silent Night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, Mark, you might be in a minority because I quite like it. Hey! <laughs> more, more, more! 
<laughs> to start with, I I thought, I got a minute, this isn't Southern Rock. Uh, but then when I realised there's just there's this real blend. I mean, this is this completely AOR. It 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 is very beige, and again, a very beige <laughs> thing, isn't it? Um, I, I quite like the chorus. I mean, it's not I, it's not the strongest song on the album, but I wouldn't put it as 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 the weakest. I, 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 Do you think it's, quite it's not the strongest song on the album? No, you're absolutely right there. <laughs> Again, oh, it's a load of sense that uh, yeah, the, the, again, this this is one of the songs that that Peterick uh, helped uh, helped produce. If, if you took this song and Survivor did it, it would be a really, really good Survivor track. This is I love this. This is AOR heaven. This is absolute AOR heaven. This is this is top ten material. This is just brilliant. I love it. I love it when. <laughs> You're, you're really offended as well. That's why I love more than anything. <laughs> I think it's a great song. First single off the album, they knew. I don't think it charted very well, but I mean... <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> well, there you go, people. Yeah, you want to know You want to know how far apart? Poles apart. Poles <laughs> apart. Um, but, you know, what do we always say, Steve? What's that phrase that we always say? Shaka and Asongu. Exactly that. So each to their own. Um, it will it will suffer in the scoring. I can <laughs> promise you that. But uh, luckily, uh, everything that has gone before is saved by hitting and running. Well, I say hitting and running. There's no G on either of them. Um, but they have got the apostrophes in the right place, which, as you know, I always like. It's the chorus that's good because the rest of it is all just a bit John Parr, a bit like... A bit like um, Fantasy Girl, but I quite like hitting and running. It's got a nice little sort of like um, groovy little chorus. The problem here is that I've heard this before and I've heard it done better. This is Southern Rock with all the guitars turned down. <laughs> the vocals are really dominating it. And, and it's crazy that the uh, this on uh, quite a few songs on this album, the guitars are just so low down in the mix. Um, uh, to the detriment of the songs, and this is one of them. Yeah, no, it's 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 not a song that bothers me at all. But what I do like about it is it's got one of their trademark endings, and, and I'll never tire of those. The, the way it just rolls on and rolls out, that they they do that really well. I'd say that. I don't know, Steve, honky tonk dancer. Were your worst fears realised? Uh, they were for me, I have to say. Yeah, it's. Um, I, it starts all right. I must admit that kind of groovy guitar line, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't last long. Yeah, I'm not, not, not. For, well, no, this is, is shite. So I don't know. I'm not fast. Like, shite is the word. But yeah, <laughs> I quite like it. I quite like a bit of sort of jazzy honky tonky kind of music. I like the groove. It's catchy. Made me smile. This song. This is again another song that I've in a style that I've heard before done much much better and that's that's the recurring thing for me would i choose to play this album again no i absolutely wouldn't it's it's just not good enough so the penultimate track on the album is throw out the line um i'll tell you what i think about this track what i think about this track is nothing because i'm listening to it now and it's like i'm listening to it for the first time because i i don't actually remember And there, in a nutshell, is this album for me. 
I, I can't, I can't have, I've just put nice and upbeat and I've left it there. I, I'm, I'm losing the will to write notes. I mean, that's. Yeah. <laughs> this moves a bit more towards Southern rock, doesn't it? Yeah. This is, I, I've, I've written Leonard Skinner light on this. It's kind of got that Skinner type groove to it. But yeah, again, pretty thin production. And we talked about, um, so the producer, Rodney Mills, I mean, so he, as an engineer, he was extensively involved with Skinnerd in pretty much all of their albums. He's got some form in within this style of music. He didn't have many of the faders up particularly high for this album, did he? No, and you have to wonder, don't you, whether it, does that association with Skinner play against 38 Special here? It's all just a bit lazy and wishy-washy, isn't yeah. it? Almost how they got the name of the band. I don't know whether you knew the story. Um, they were, they were, it happened on a band um, just before a gig in Gainesville, Florida, apparently. Um, it was something to do with a run-in with the cops they'd had during a practice session. And some cop made a gag about putting a 38 special. That'll get you boys out of the studio. And they said, oh, well, we'll call ourselves that for this gig. And then they just never bothered to change it. So, <laughs> what was that, ringing so, endorsement? Yes, again, it's proving that the journalist that you are, you did more. You did more research than the journalist that I am. Um, but, but I kind of, I just wondered whether, I, and I meant to and forgot because that's that's a recurring theme with this. I meant to listen to this properly, and I didn't. I meant to do the research, and I didn't. I meant to look up whether Thirty Eight Special was some sort of oblique reference to Skinner, that it was some sort of you know relation to the Saturday Night Special. But no, apparently you've now answered the question, so I don't have to do the research. Thank God for people like you, Steve. Um, so let's move on to the last to the last track on the album, and maybe you can answer the other questions that I never bothered to do the research for. Um, so actually, I quite like this. I think this is yeah. not a bad way to end the album. Yeah, it's it's not quite at the same level as Hold On Loosely, but yeah. it's a damn sight better than most of what's gone in between. Nice yeah. riff quite atmospheric there's actually a bit of depth to the production lovely guitar work uh on it from don barnes um and the vocals pretty good as well so yeah i'm i'm kind of a happy bunny again at the end of this album they've turned the guitars up thank god good solid finish like the start again there's so many a number of tracks on this album there's the, the first 30 seconds are great and then it just seems to fall away it's weird um, yeah, but the solos are good in here, and yeah, you hear, you hear the guitars and the good guitar work. So yeah, a bit of an improvement to finish with. It's just a just a nice just a nice rocker. They bring it home, don't they? With bring it on, it's just a decent rocker. And yet again, and not for the first time on this album, um, I sound like a start record. It's the outro that that kind of cements it all together. If an outro can do that, you know what I mean? It just it just it's a it's a lovely bookend to uh, you've actually bookended the album pretty well. Well, very well. I think. Uh, let's do highs and lows. Richard, start with you. Yeah, so uh, low for me is Back Alley Sally and uh, high is the first track, Hold On Loosely. Uh, yeah, Hold On Loosely. Obviously, I can't even remember what I did for Back Alley Sally. It was that awful. Yeah, no, no, that, that was my low as well. Yeah, which is, you know, saying something given you've got Honky Tonk Dancer and Throughout the Line on there. So, uh, yeah, Back Alley Sally as well for me. So my high uh, is also Hold On Loosely and no surprises to find out that the absolute critical low on this album is 
um, the appalling fantasy girl. <laughs> no doubt saved by your bells. <laughs> just a word, just a word of advice. Next time when you admit to not listening to an album much, try listening to it a bit more. Certainly track called Fantasy Girl. Right? <laughs> oh dear. It's time to move on to pastures new, pastures greener, pastures over the threshold in the now is it psych delicatessen or is it psyche delicatessen oh i haven't got a clue mate i mean they say it's a portmanteau don't they so it could be psychedelica it could be delicatessen so i've just gone psychedelicatessen i don't know and i care probably much the same as well so really not fussed it's quite an old album okay opening album sleeve notes um it's interesting isn't it we've just come out of a chat about 38 special and the uh paucity of songwriting skills and this say what you like about psychedelic contest and then you may know it you may not know chances are you won't know it when it comes to songwriting i think this album is pretty much peerless i really do i mean forget you know that there might be riffs you don't like there might be tunes you don't like there might be bits of it you don't like but the actual construction of these songs this is prog this is eight nine ten minute songs you've got to know you how to write a song and i think Pretty much every step of this of this album is spot on. As I say, whatever you think of the music, I think the way they write it, their songwriting and song arrangement is absolutely spot on. So yeah, Threshold, a band from Surrey or South London around there. So what do we know about Threshold? Well, this is a band that's kind of um, tapping into the re-emergence of prog metal in the early 90s, as simple as that. Um, I'm sure they're inspired by the likes of Queensryche and Fate's Warning and Dream Theatre to a degree. Because um, images and words had come out um, a couple of years earlier, they'd released Dream Theatre had released Awake this year in '94. Um, so now we're at a stage where prog is officially cool, um, and it's being reinvented. It's being, you know, it, it's made it's being made heavier and reimagined, and just been a lot more fun. Long tracks, they're all still there. Um, everything we love about prog in the '70s, but it's just been. It's just been upped, massively upped, and so much fun to listen to. And Psychedelic Delicatessen is a classic example um, of what's possible in this era. What makes it, though, forget the prog, what makes it the riffs? It's just such a heavy beast of an album, you know? And it's, this is almost a thrash album in terms of the, the sheer heaviness, the weight of what's going on, you know? And that's just, you know, yes, it's prog, and it is, there's loads of prog in there, but it's just a... It's just a really seriously, seriously heavy album. So November the 1st, 1994, it was released, and it was um, on the Giant Electric P label, um, which had only been going for a couple of years, and it was very much a prog. <laughs> Who knew? It was a, it's a prog label. <laughs> Where are the clues there? And Threshold were on there along with, <clears throat> I think, yes, we're on there for a while. It's 55 minutes long. It's produced by Carl Groom and Richard West. It's um, recorded somewhere in Berkshire, don't know where. Previous album was there for the first album, Wounded Land, and they had to wait four years, uh, three years for the third album, which we called Extinct Instinct. They've had loads of personnel over the years, many of whom leave and come back. Um, what's great about this album? So Carl Groom and Nick Midson are the guitarists. John Geary, who was the original lead vocalist, is now the bass player doing additional vocals. Richard West is on keyboard and piano, Nick Harridan's in drums. But the big plus on this album is um, the lead vocalist is a guy called Glyn Morgan. This was the only album he did before he returned to the band in 2017. UK chart position, US chart position, nah. Sales info, nope. And there are nine tracks on this, um, four on side one, five on side two, 
Um, there are other tracks, depending on whether you buy a Japanese version or the 2001 edition, which is saying, because a couple of tracks on there I really like, but we're not going to look at those. We're just going to look at the nine on this. So that Sunseeker, Attention of Souls, Into the Light and Will to Give, which is about as beefy a side of music as you will come across. Then you get the breather at the start of side two, which is called Under the Sun, Babylon Rising, Here's I Am, Innocent and Devoted. Um, and that, as I say, is Psychedelic Atessen, their second album. I just think they've nailed it. I just think they've absolutely nailed it. I just think it's a crushingly big and beautiful piece of work. And um, I hope you two have thought much the same. Absolutely. I hadn't heard of them, didn't know them. Feel embarrassed that I, I missed this. Bits of, sort of Dream Theatre and Queensryche. Yeah, <laughs> me, I don't know. Testament, Metallica, just is right up my street. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. So, yeah, thank you. Mark? Yes meets Metallica is kind of where I got to quite quickly. Big fan of the Metallica parts of it. Yeah. Less <laughs> into the yes parts of it. Um, <laughs> the sum of the whole is, is I think, a sensational album. Um, I'm going to commit complete sacrilege now um, and have the two of you with your head in your hands when I say that it's way too long, I think. Yeah. Um, because I can't, I, I can't, I can't sustain my attention for that long. Uh-huh. Um, but that's just more about me than it does about the sound of music. Because the there's no doubt about the songwriting ability, and the structures and the complexity of it. And yeah, you know, I have not. When I say I, I, I can't, it doesn't hold my attention. I don't get bored with it. I just I'm ready for something new before the track finishes. So, you know, the the, the into the light I think is the ten minute, isn't it? Epic and um, and in the same way that I love Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, uh, I'm made with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is a similar length. Um, I'm ready for the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner to end well before the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner ends. And there are there are two or three tracks on this album where I'm just like, okay, well, yeah, I'm done with it now. I'll just move on. But you know. No getting away from the fact an absolutely, you know, classic, brilliantly executed piece of work, which I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to. I understand what you're saying, Mark, around, I mean, nearly an hour hour of music to to listen in one sitting of this complexity. What I'm going to quite enjoy listening to this uh, double vinyl is it's basically sort of, it's got some bonus tracks on it, but you've essentially got three or four tracks aside. So that'll do, you know, listening to this Mm -hmm. in. Uh, sort of twenty-minute chunks or whatever will be perfectly yeah. fine. Um, yeah. What I'm saying is doomsday for the deceiver. I think that's fifty-five, and that's fine. Thank you very much. So, so psychedelic <laughs> test kicks off with yeah, Sunseeker is the uh, opener on this album, and I, I, I think this was the song that I was linked to on Spotify. Great atmosphere to open, plenty of effects, and quickly into a brutal riff, a pretty brutal riff. And you're immediately intrigued um, by this and excited, well, I was, um, A, where this seven-and-a-half-minute track was going to go um, and quite what was to come, you know. Where it does go is via a wailing guitar lead into the body of a song, and that riff ain't going anywhere. That's 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 there for the duration, and you, you find that with, you know, most of their songs. So, yeah, there's so many – it's very hard to describe because, as I say, it is seven-and-a-half minutes. You've got a pre-chorus into the chorus. The riff's still going. The riff doesn't stop, as I say, the synths. Just repeat. It's a beast of a song, heavy, melodic, glued together by a vocalist in Glyn Morgan, who is blessed with a voice 
and make of this what you will, does not sound unlike Sean Harris. That puts him up a level straight away as far as I'm concerned. The vocals on this track finish at about the six minute mark. Gives us time for a keyboard organ-drenched outro, but still with that riff just powering it along. It's a stunning track. So it's a really, really powerful powerhouse opener. I'm so pleased you mentioned Sean Harris because that's what I got throughout this. And I, mm. I, I thought, do you know what? If Diamond Head had, had formed in 1992, 93, this is what they would have released. I'm sure yeah. of it. Um, you know, because they are that they because it strikes me that Threshold are kind of the diamond head of their time because this is unlike anything I've ever heard before. But you're also bear in mind you're talking to somebody who's never heard anything by Dream Theater. So what does that say about me? This just blew my mind when I put it on. And and lots of this album does blow my mind. I think it's there's lots of it that's absolutely sensational. And this track, front to back, is one of them. Yeah, superstar, absolutely superstar. And as you say, it's like they're, they're Diamond Head, Metallica. The break about two thirds of the way through just reminded me of Dream Theater. It's got a, a, a Queensrÿche time shift kind of bit towards the end. I'm a happy boy. I'm a really, really happy boy. Seven and a half minutes, and then we go into another seven minutes, which is called Attention of Souls. Um, Sounds like you're bowing out with a little bit of organ and, and then it drifts into this it's just beyond beast. I mean, it's beyond beast tension of self. Again, it's a long track, as I say. You spend about the first couple of minutes just setting the scene almost, but it's exciting. There's an atmosphere there, you know. It's almost, again, there's, there's a menace and you're not quite sure where it's going to go. There's a big, powerful plod of a beat, and you're full, but you're full of anticipation. It doesn't happen. And then about the three-minute mark, you get this absolute motherfucker of, of all riffs, which is a two-pace riff, which they do three times, the third time over a load of keyboards. And it's just gargantuan. It's one of my favourite ever riffs, I think. Riff's colossal. I love the changes throughout this. We've talked a number of times about songs that stop you doing anything. And the first time I listened to this, I just said, okay, right, I, I, I have to give this my full attention. I just have to sit down and properly, properly concentrate. I mean, the way it completely takes off in the middle and the whole thing just lifts and lifts. Yeah, great stuff. It's an absolute juggernaut of a riff. And I have to say, I listened to Sunseeker and thought, oh, that's absolutely brilliant. But, you know, where do they go from there? And then you go, oh, <laughs> oh, they go here. Okay, yeah, fine, fine. And like Richard, I'm very happy. So, you know, the fact that I think it's a bit too long does not mean that I don't think it's a brilliant album, because it is. It absolutely yeah. is. This, this doesn't sustain your attention. This is the one that grabs you by the lapels and forces you against the wall. Yes. <laughs> it batters any resistance out of you. The good news is this is not my favourite track on the album, and neither is Sunseeker. Okay. And I don't think it's the most brutal track either. No, 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 it's not. I, I couldn't agree with you. And I've got a sense I probably know which one your favourite is. And I would imagine it's not track three, which is Into the Light, notwithstanding its Y&T start. We've got this lovely guitar line, prelude for just a 10-minute epic. And it is an epic, um, more complex and more layered and uh, more storied than the first two. Not that I know what the story is, but there's a lot more going on. 
So, the, so you've got this great intro that showcases Morgan's singing voice, gives way to a gallop, and it builds and builds and builds. The first four minutes of this are top class AOR metal. And if you ended the song at the four, if you, the, the, there's about three or four different parts of this song. If you ended at the four minute mark, you'd think you've got your hands, you've got on your hands a kind of majestic pop metal song, saturated in keyboards. And then comes the change up, the meanness. You got some real dream theatre um, vocal dramas, uh, very reminiscent of um, oh, the, the, something like the test that stumped them all, which dream theatre didn't do till after this. Maybe they were inspired by them. They did tour with them actually. Um, anyway, the end of the songs to die for, how to bring a story home, joyful. I think I, I don't think it's too long, but then I like long prog songs. Yeah, this is a song in about 84 parts, isn't it? Mm-hmm. This is the first track that sounds rooted in its own time rather than out of time, whether that's in the past or in the future. This sounds like it was written in the 90s, okay. yeah, in the mid-90s. But it's six minutes 30 in, because you're lulled into this false sense of security or false impression of it, because you think it's just going to be a one-paced, not quite a ballad, but like, but then it just has this absolutely monumental riff that just cranks out of nowhere at six and a half minutes in. And and that's, yeah, you said this is not going to be my favourite song on the album. It's my second favourite song on the album, actually, okay. which might surprise you. Okay. I can do the 10 minutes happily, but I think they could have done it just as well in six or seven. But... Yeah, picking holes, picking holes. Great track. Yeah, where it gets heavier in the middle, um, and the riffs in the second half are just fantastic. Uh, I think it's another great song. I mean, three, three absolute corkers to start this up. And the volume and the weight and the power don't let up either with um, "Will to Give," which is the the final track on on side one. Which I actually wonder if we should have to be marking, given it's only four minutes fifty four seconds long. <laughs> <laughs> but we will, we will. And this is, uh, yeah, and this is a galloper, isn't it? This With different shades of gallop throughout, veering from kind of atmospheric to, you know, downright thunderous. Again, great vocal harmonies. Uh, Morgan at full stretch, and quite a lot of full stretch in, in this song, but I don't think he suffers for it. There's a really nice interlude. It's almost a thrash song. Yeah, by this stage, yeah, I'm still guessing on where they're going to go with each song. You know, there's the yeah. bass at the start of this. Absolute killer riff in this song. By now on the on this album, I'm just I'm just lying on my back and soaking it all up. You know, so really good, very good. And the interesting thing is that side two it probably works better on CD actually because this is therefore the middle track. Um, but the one that opens side two is um, well, it's basically a long interlude. It's a, a, almost a three-minute breather called um, Under the Sun, which is a lovely tune um, played out on piano, uh, nice vocals. Would sit very nice on a Journey album, I thought. I sense it's more of a kind of respite here to uh, to bring us into side two. I like it a lot. I think it's very nice. Nothing to dislike about it. Um, and the harmonies are great. His voice, his vocal is, again, quite feminine. He has this remarkable ability Good uh, Morgan to to change the the whole sound of his voice, which I find quite unique. And what I like about this track is that it really adds to the pace of the album as a whole. So you don't you because you feel you can feel quite breathless at times yeah. with it, and then it strips it straight back, and you're just left with this quite beautiful piece of music um, that sort of sets you up for the rest of the side. I really like this. Mm-hmm. Now, if, the, if, there, if this is Babylon Rising, if there is a low point on the album, it's all relative. Um, this, to me, is probably it. 
not because it's not because it's a bad track at all far from it anything but um but just that certainly the first four tracks forget under the sun the first four tracks on side one but there's been so, there was so much imagination and innovation to accompany those powerhouse riffs um and it's just not there i don't think with babylon rising quite the same way so it becomes a little bit straight ahead which which is is not a criticism it's, it's an observation you know i mean a, a lot of bands do straight ahead metal so you've got you know, lots of sort of visage style organs it's quite a haunting feel to it pauses you know there's a bit of theater and a bit of drama but it's just it's not the it's not the best on this album in fact it, it's my weakest yeah mine too and this is the one that i said i'm least bothered by i love it yeah <laughs> yeah yes it's, <laughs> yes it's more straightforward but this riff is just so so catchy um, and, the, and the synths just add this beautiful breadth to it. I think it's a crack. Yeah, and it's because it's the bastard offspring of Rush and Queensryche. That's why you... <laughs> uh, what, what I do think is brilliant, and, and I do think brilliant, is He Is, I Am, um, which Babylon Rising seamlessly drifts into. Again, it's just a, it's a, it, yet another great riff. Now they're writing, now they're creating, now there's a bit more imagination. What this has got is um, an absolutely mustard finish, absolutely fantastic finish. Yeah, I'd be to know what Mark says in a minute because I'm, I, I, I'm the other way around with you. I, I, I think it, it, there were bits of this that I felt were a bit repetitive of, uh, of Babylon Rising. Yes, it's faster, in, um, but it, um, I mean, nice riffs, I mean, not, I haven't scored any any of these tracks low, but this is lower uh, uh, lower for me. Um, it didn't do as much for me. It's a ten. Oh, <laughs> I love this track. Absolutely brilliant. I want to walk down the aisle with this riff <laughs> <laughs> and exchange vows at the end of it. It is a beast, isn't it? It truly is. But this is me, isn't it? This is right up my alley. This is exactly what I kind of, you know, this is what floats my boat. I'm a simple soul in the end, and a good riff will get me every time. So anyway, we are being regally and hourly battered. But we have another break, kind of, which is um, a track called Innocent. And what a treat this is. A slow start, um, quite haunting, with some really interesting slightly discordant guitar notes which are almost genius i don't know just add to the atmosphere anyway there's a wonderful bridge into the body of the song where the volume goes up and then morgan comes in but still tuneful still graceful there's an elegance about this um and then comes the menace because there's always menace with threshold there's a subtle change in the backbeat more keyboards the mood change there's two moments in this one from a morgan chorus into the guitar solo which is just a treat and then equally a treat out of the solo back into a singing piece it's just beautiful i just think it's a i just think it's a really classy piece of work glenn morgan's vocal performance on this track is outstanding yeah. just uh, really, just amazing amazing vocalist i think a bit like um am i evil you know the high Brian Tanner's harmonics. The harmonics on this make this track for me. But you're right. Glyn Morgan's voice is, is incredible. Absolutely incredible. What is a real shame about this band as a whole, and I haven't heard anything else they've done, and maybe 
it's not a shame. Maybe actually that is all about the charm and the appeal of it. But it's like a revolving door of people to it, isn't it? And they had, was it three different vocalists on their yeah. albums, on the three, three albums? You said? Yeah. Well, where's the consistency? And I, mean, um, I don't know. Maybe the other two are just as good as Glyn Morgan, but it's hard to think there's anybody out there who might be as good as this. Well, I, I, I would strongly suggest that you do listen to some of the stuff that featured Damien Wilson on lead vocals because he, again, an equally classy singer. I mean, a really, really good singer. And this was one of two singles off the album. And Richard West, the keyboard player and um, producer, tells a lovely story of how MTV were covering a festival in Belgium when they were on the same bill as Whitesnake. They were a long way down, Whitesnake were a long way up. But on the same bill, this is about this time when this album was coming out. And MTV, who were filming Whitesnake, loved it and said, do a video, do a video for Innocence and we'll stick it on Headbangers Ball. And of course they thought, oh, we've made it, you know, this is it, we're going to make it. We finally hit the big time. All we've got to do is a video and we'll be on Headbangers Ball. They did the video, they sent it off and Headbangers Ball had finished. It had gone. There was no more Headbangers Ball. And they said, and Wes said, and he admitted it with a smile on his face, he said, the first of many missed opportunities for Threshold. I just think they've never really been on the radar and sometimes good musicians aren't. And there you go. But is, it, is that because, I, I think that's because of, <coughs> excuse me, that's because of the label. I'm sure of it. If they've had big label backing, they would have been massive, I'm sure. Of it. Yeah, how can you have? Because I think they're a better band than Muse, personally. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not a big Muse fan, but listening to to them both, I would say they're a better band. So how can Muse make it and this band doesn't? And I, that has to be about money. It has to be. Well, the point is the labels are out there. I mean, they're, they're hearing this stuff the same as we are, so they're not prepared to invest, are they? And the 90s are the height of the new wave of prog, as we know, you know. I mean, there was, there were, yeah. people were snapping this sort of shit up. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it's, it's almost quite depressing, really. But, you know, we're listening to it with smiles on our faces. So, you know, happy days, happy days. And to the closer, which is called Devoted, um, and we're back in with a seven-and-a-half-minute journey again. And this takes about two minutes of real meanness before it descends into an absolutely classic dream theatre keyboard life. You can almost see Kevin Moore playing it. I mean, it's just so them. It's another epic. There's a bit in here which almost makes me laugh. It's almost like an Eastern European national anthem section set in a cathedral, which I find quite odd. Um, But the exit from this, the exit from this song is just is metal heaven. It's just spectacular. So it's such a layered song, great song, but there's just a little bit of a, there's a little bit of organ in a cathedral that takes a bit of getting used to, getting on with. I think this is a brilliant finish. Absolutely brilliant finish. This is close to sort of Metropolis era dream theatre yeah. for me. Yeah. So well arranged. And you, you just get used to one bit of it and then the riff suddenly cracks in and it jumps. Great stuff. It's cashmere with bollocks. That's what it is. I'll give you this. It's a perfectly good song. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, I want more than that. I want more. That's that's it. It's a perfectly good song. I'm not hearing what you two are hearing. 
so yeah, there you go. Psychedelic Atessence. Have some highs and some lows. Right, well, not because it's in any way a bad song, but there are so many big ones on this. I think I'll have to give Under the Sun my lowest mark. Not that it's a low mark. And loads vying for the top. I'm, I'm going to give it to Devoted. I'm going to give it to Devoted. Uh, okay, so so Richard, you, you've managed to um, make the second lowest scoring track on the album your favorite that's fine uh mine is uh my mine is um babylon rising that's my low and he is i am all day yeah i haven't got a week i haven't got a week someone at all babylon rising has got my lowest score but it's not a low score um and i have a 10 out of 10 which is attention of souls which i just i could i could listen to that riff on a loop forever until the day i die and beyond dying i will listen to that riff and- as well and let me just add, if you're listening to this thinking, should I go out and listen to this album, go out and buy it or not? Which one of these Muppets should I actually agree with and whose advice should I follow? Can I just tell you, it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> if, you want, if, if you're into your prog metal and you want to know what this album's really all about, then take what Richard and Steve are saying because I know bugger all about this stuff. Don't listen to a word he says, but but he is right on this score. Now, listen, duty calls and duty in that case means us scoring the uh, albums we've listened to from Axis, from 38 Special and from Threshold. That's what we'll do. And when we've done that, we'll see where these three albums are going to slot into the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so the scores are in. Uh, and very interesting they are too. So let's go through these scores in the order of the albums we listen to. So it's me up first with Axis and It's a Circus World. And we scored it as follows. Um, Steve scored it a 7.27. Mark scored it a 7.98. And I scored it a 7.72. And that gave Axis overall a 7.66 and a bit Mark, how does 38 special get on? Uh, not that well, um, but then pretty much as expected, I guess. Uh, Stevie gave it a dead seven. Richard liked it uh, a little bit less and gave it a 6.7. And I liked it least of all and gave it a 6.65 to give 38 specials wild-eyed southern boys an average score of more or less 6.8. And Steve, uh, Threshold, the surprise package. Hmm. Yeah, and we all liked it, and we all liked it very much. Um, Richard gave it eight point one six. You gave it eight point three three. I gave it eight point three eight. Not a lot in those. Um, and the overall total is eight point two nine six three zero, which is a decent number by any measure. Well, anything over eight is a pretty decent effort, isn't it? Um, a mm. lot of albums, most of the albums, have struggled to get to that. Okay, so uh, it's time then to find out how these albums landed up in the Hall of Fame. I suspect two are going to be all right, and one probably isn't, but let's head over and see what's what. It's time to put the rock in a hard place, opening the Hall of Fame. So here we are in the Hall of Fame, 135 albums uh, in there now, and, well, 35 now, obviously, outside or thirty, yeah, thirty-four outside the top one hundred, and one of those uh, is 
38 Specials, Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, that comes on to the chart at 118, nestled, shall we say, between Stone Temple Pilots Core and Wasp Inside the Electric Circus. That's a fairly scary company <laughs> for 38 Special. Um, you have to go up quite a bit, though, find the next entry, which is Axis, which comes in at a very respectable 46, uh, with its circus well from 1978 between... Van Halen, well, tied, actually, with Van Halen's debut album and Fighting for the Earth, Warrior sitting just underneath them. It's a circus world comes just underneath Van Halen because Van Halen's top three ranked scores are higher than Axis's top three ranked scores, uh, tracks. So uh, that's why Van Halen sits above them in the list. And then we climb up and up and up and up and up and we come across Threshold at number 13. I mean, that is a pretty solid result for a band that you know two of us hadn't heard of uh, coming into this uh, episode of the podcast. And f- uh, from my point of view, thoroughly deserved. I think that, personally, I think that um, that list now reflects their various attributes quite nicely, actually. I don't think there's anything wrong with the placings there. I don't have any argument with that. Uh, I don't suppose you do either, Steve, do you? No, not at all. You said, I mean, you said earlier in the week, didn't you, that it was it was lining up to be a Lucifer's friend moment, and it's, it's not quite those sort of dizzy heights, but it's up there, isn't it? That real shock, that real surprise, an album that you've not heard before, and it's just dynamite. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised to see it where it is. I'm not surprised. Well, I'm mildly surprised to see Axis where it is, but then, I'm, let's face it, I think I gave it the lowest score, didn't I? So... I can hardly complain. Um, and, yeah, Wild-Eyed Southern Boys, we had a laugh with it, didn't we? I mean, in a, in a not very funny way. It's, it's, it's the first and last time we'll see that, and that's fine. It's, I tell you what, I've had a blast. So, listen, yeah, so enter sadmen.co.uk for information about what we do and everything. I'm off to work out what I'll be doing for next week. Mark's off to listen to Fantasy Girl to realise what a dickhead he is. And the three of us will all be back next time for episode 46. And we sincerely hope we'll have your company. Until then, cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.